Good morning. Welcome back to the Brawn Body Podcast. Happy Hump Day. So, today we're diving into some neuroscience. And you're probably thinking, okay, what does this have to do with health and fitness here? You, you know, you had me here, we had a good streak of podcasts going, and now you're saying neuroscience. So, this podcast is meant to kind of lay the framework and groundwork for some future stuff we're going to be doing Concepts like motor learning and how you can increase your neuromuscular recruitment to get stronger. Uh, Things like satellite cells, all of that. So in order to get to that point, I wanted to lay the base work and the uh, foundation, so to speak, of what exactly the nervous system is and what neuroscience is really about. So, without further ado, let's dive in. So, starting off here, the nervous system itself is broken up into two or sometimes three different categories. So, you have your central nervous system. This is the classic brain and spinal cord example. And then the peripheral nervous system, which is all of your peripheral nerves. So, if you didn't realize this, the spinal cord has nerves that come off at each level and run into the periphery. These nerves will connect to different structures in your body, like your muscles, giving them their contractile elements. So for example, the biceps are innervated by the musculocutaneous nerve, which is made up of nerve roots C5 and C7. So that's in your neck, so your cervical spine. So we've got our central nervous system, peripheral nervous system. We also have what's called the autonomic nervous system. And some sources classify this separately from the other two. But basically, this is your sympathetic and parasympathetic drives. So these are your fight or flight sympathetic or rest and digest parasympathetic. Your sympathetic is actually at the level of T1 to L2, so mid-back to upper-lower back. And then the parasympathetics are actually your cranial nerves, so stuff from your skull. You've probably heard me or other people talking a lot about the vagus nerve and how important that is for the parasympathetic nervous system. That's actually cranial nerve 10. And you also see the parasympathetics at the S2, 3, and 4 levels. So we've got our three components of the nervous system. Now we're going to kind of narrow it down a little bit more. Obviously, our body is made up of cells. And the typical cells you'll see in the nervous system are neurons, whether they're sensory neurons, motor neurons, or interneurons and glial cells. Now let's break those down a little bit. So as far as neurons are concerned, you can have a unipolar neuron, which is where you have the cell body connected to this long axon with dendrites at the end of it. So I like to envision one of those slingy, sticky uh, hand things that you used to get at the uh, little 25 cent vending machines at the grocery store. I don't know if you've ever seen those before 
where there's basically a hand at one end and there's this long stretchy thing coming down off of it. I like to envision that hand as the cell body and the dendrite being that long handle, so to speak, being the dendrite. So unipolar neuron, uni meaning one, so one cell body, one axon. And those are typically used for sensation and sensory functions. So if we have a unipolar, then I'm sure, you could, as you can imagine, we have a bipolar. So a bipolar neuron occurs when you have a cell body with two axons coming out. And we typically see that in the olfactory system and the retina. So things like sight and smell. So two very important functions uh, there. And so we have a unipolar, a bipolar, and then we also have a pseudo-unipolar. So that pseudo-unipolar starts as a bipolar, where you have a cell body and you have an axon coming out from two different sides. But what ends up happening is the cell body ends up kind of morphing out to the side of the axon. So you have these two axons, but no true dendrites. The cell body itself actually sits outside of those axons. And those are also sensory cells. Uh, they typically sense things like pain, touch, that sort of thing. Last, we have a multipolar neuron. So multipolar neurons occur where you have a cell body with multiple dendrites coming off. You have lots of axons. There's a lot of stuff happening here. And because of that, they tend to be more motor and interneurons, which makes sense. Motor neurons are what supply muscles, contractile elements. So believe it or not, we said these were a type of cell. So step back to high school biology class for a second. Although these are ner like neurons, nervous system cells, they still have things like mitochondria, endoplasmic reticulum, microtubules, all that stuff that you've learned about before. So, great. How about breaking these down a little more? So, we said we've got these neurons, right? They can interact with one another, and that's how we send messages throughout our body. So, typically, we have either a divergent pathway or a convergent pathway for that communication to occur. In the divergent pathways, the name pretty much applies, implies what it does. You have one neuron that branches out to impact multiple other neurons. So the, the uh, interaction occurs at what we call a synapse. So you would have one presynaptic neuron, so one neuron up the chain impacting multiple postsynaptic neurons, so multiple neurons below the chain. And then we also have a convergent pathway, which is where we would have multiple presynaptic neurons. So up the chain, we've got a lot of different neurons, and they're coming in together to connect to one or a smaller number of postsynaptic neurons. So in the divergent, one impacts many, and in the convergent, many come together to impact one. And for the most part, that information is going to flow in one direction, typically away from the cell body. So, 
we said that there's this messaging that occurs at this thing called a synapse. And we know that's between two neurons. One is presynaptic, one is postsynaptic. So the synapse is that little space in between them. So how do we get that interaction to occur? We have what's called a neurotransmitter. And a neurotransmitter is going to be released by the presynaptic neuron. And it will be released into the synaptic terminal or synapse. And the neurotransmitter will then bind to receptors on the postsynaptic neuron and cause a response or reaction. But the thing is, in order for that to occur, we have to produce neurotransmitters and we have to get them to the synapse. So they have to move along. So the neurotransmitters are actually produced in the cell body or they'll have their components put together in the cell body. They'll ship them down towards the synapse and they'll be assembled closer to the synapse. So this can be done via two different transport mechanisms, a fast one and a slow one. So the fast axonal transport. So we've got that synaptic vesicle coming from the cell body. It's going to travel the entire length of the axon and then come into the synapse. So fast axonal transport occurs when you are using those microtubule rails. Remember, they have the neurons are cells, so they have a microtubule structure. So they're going to ship their synaptic vesicle down these microtubule rails to the synapse. And that is called anterograde because it's moving away from the cell body. And this is an active process. It requires energy to occur. And this occurs pretty quick when you consider the size of a cell. This occurs at a rate of 400 millimeters in a single day. And I know to us that might not sound like much because you can literally stand up and take a step and go further than that in two seconds. But to our cells, think of how small these things are. Microscopic. That's pretty darn fast. The other cool thing about fast axonal transport is the microtubules will also run retrograde, which is back towards the cell body. And doing this allows the cell, the neuron, to recycle the, uh, the neurotransmitters and the synaptic vesicles and material and all that. So if that's fast, what's slow? Slow is very slow. Only one to three millimeters covered per day. And this is only one direction, anterograde, away from the cell body. However, it does not require any energy. It's sort of a diffusion-type process, so to speak. So that's all about neurons and probably more than you ever wanted to know about neurons. But we said there's also glial cells. And what exactly are they? So there's really three main types or three main flavors of glial cells. You start with the oligodendrocytes or oligodendrocytes, and they're located in the central nervous system. They have an equivalent in the peripheral nervous system, and those are called Schwann cells. You also have astrocytes and microglia in the central nervous system. So breaking these down step by step, 
those oligodendrocytes in the central nervous system and Schwann cells in the peripheral nervous system will produce myelin. And myelin is this thick insulating type material that covers your axons. This will help speed up the process of conduction, the process of sending a nerve impulse from one neuron to the next. And you've probably heard of different patients or people who have certain pathologies like multiple sclerosis who have dysfunction of this system. They don't have enough myelin uh, covering their nerves. So astrocytes, again, central nervous system here. I like to call these the jack of all trades because they do a little bit of everything. They add structure to the central nervous system. They allow for communication between neurons and provide nutrients to the neurons from the bloodstream because, again, we said there's cells, so they need energy, they need nutrients, and they need to get rid of their waste products. They also can function slightly for scavenging, so if there's stuff where it shouldn't be, these will help to hunt it down and get rid of it. And... I think most importantly, personally, they can proliferate when an injury occurs in the central nervous system. So this call, uh, causes a glial scar, we call it, to form in the central nervous system. That's great when injury occurs, but it can limit recovery potential because it can inhibit the growth of new neurons in that area of the glial scar. And last of these three, we have the microglia or microglia. And these are basically scavengers. So they roll around in the central nervous system and they look for things and they scavenge immune kind of function, uh, very similar to macrophages, if you remember when I talked about them in the immune system podcast. So We've got through that nitty-gritty details on the different types of cells. So we know what makes up our nervous system, and we know the broad uh, picture of the nervous system. We have a central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, all that. So now getting into even more details, more of stuff that you've probably heard of before, just never really knew what it does. We have the brain itself which is composed of the cerebrum, which is made up of two hemispheres and five lobes. So the two hemispheres are simply left and right. And then the lobes are the frontal, parietal, temporal, occipital, and the limbic. So breaking these down one by one, the frontal lobe is responsible for things like motor function, decision-making, personality, and memory consolidation. So obviously the frontal lobe is going to be very important when we talk about things like exercise, health and fitness, because we just said it's very important for motor function. It's important for decision-making. Personality, which yes, your personality can impact your health and fitness, and memory consolidation. So when you're listening to this podcast, you'll actually be able to remember something, hopefully. So next we have the parietal lobe. The parietal lobe is primarily sensation. It does a lot of complex sensory functions, somatosensory, that sort of thing. We also have the temporal lobe, which is mainly language, but it also uh, 
contributes to memory and is very closely linked to the limbic lobe. The limbic lobe is located just inferior to that temporal lobe, and that's very focused on memory and emotions. Last, we have the occipital lobe, and that's located in the back of your head. So you can probably just touch the back of your head, and you'll probably be right on it. And that's responsible for vision. So you've probably seen different cartoons or something similar before of how the eyes connect straight to the back of the brain. So that's all composing the cerebrum, that left and right hemisphere, and those five lobes make up the cerebrum. We also have what's called the diencephalon, and this is located inside the brain. It's really deep in there, and this has four main components. So the first is called the thalamus, and you might have heard of this one before. So the thalamus is kind of a relay station for sensory nervous system and sensation to occur. It's also very important in motor learning. So as I said, later on, we'll be diving into motor learning and neuromotor recruitment and that sort of thing. So we will be going back to the thalamus in the near future. We also have the hypothalamus, which is also a big deal. We've probably touched on that before. If not, we will definitely dive into it in future podcasts. So hypo as the name implies, is just inferior to the thalamus. And this actually regulates body function. So things like thermoregulation, thirst, hunger, all of that, because this is that master switchboard in control of most of your body's hormones and endocrine functions. So obviously its goal is to keep your body balanced and maintain homeostasis. So We've got that thalamus and hypothalamus. Then we have our epithalamus, which, as the name implies, is just above the thalamus, so superior to it. And we call this the pineal gland. And you've probably heard me talk about that. Again, immune system podcast, recovery podcast, because this is responsible for melatonin production. So all about maintaining that circadian rhythm. It's associated with the immune system, seasonal anxiety disorder, even different types of cancers, unfortunately. And last, we have the subthalamus, which is also located inferior to the thalamus. And that's very important in motor function. So if you know someone who has a stroke in the subthalamus, they're going to have some issues there. So, so far we've gone through quite a bit. We went through the whole cerebrum, we went through the diencephalon, but there's more. So we also have what's called the cerebellum, and that's located kind of posterior, so behind that thalamus type area, and it's located below it as well. And there's a left and right cerebral hemisphere cerebellar hemisphere, I'm sorry. And we call this little, little brain because it kind of looks like a small brain. And that cerebellum is really important for correction and coordination. So things like sensory motor coordination, motor learning, again, another big concept here. It's kind of like that internal coach. So when you think about doing something like a squat, 
the cerebellum would be involved in kind of that movement coordination pattern and the correction of it if it's faulty. So, almost done with the brain. Last, we have what's called the midbrain, or the brainstem, I'm sorry. The brainstem is made up of the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla, or medulla oblongata, as you might have heard it called. So, midbrain, pons, medulla make up the brainstem. What, do that, what does that do? The, these three structures work together to act as a conduit to pass information up and down the spinal cord. So they're connecting your spinal cord to your cortex of your brain. And as a result, they kind of integrate everything. So they integrate your respiratory center, your cardiac center. They're part of your cranial nerve system. So they can have an impact on a lot of different organs. Um, you'll see cranial nerve three, four, I think, uh, six, seven, eight, all kinds of different ones roll through uh, the midbrain. Uh, I'm sorry, the brainstem. I keep mixing those up. So now that we've exhausted the brain, it's time to talk about the spinal cord. So in general, the spinal cord is organized into sections. So we talked before, we have a cervical section of our spinal cord, which is up in our neck, our thoracic, which is like that mid-blade, shoulder, mid-back, shoulder-blade kind of area, lumbar, which is like that lower back kind of area, sacral, which is down around your butt, and coccygeal, which is even more uh, up in your butt kind of area. But you can also break it up into gray matter and white matter, because as you know, there's different colors in the nervous system. Uh, you can break up into dorsal and ventral, so and that's front and back, anterior and posterior, or different tracks, so ascending and descending tracks. So the spinal cord itself actually ends at L2. So your spinal cord does not go all the way down your spine, which is kind of a shocker to some people. But when you think about it, it makes sense. After L2, all of your spinal cord becomes these kind of like spaghetti strand-like things. And these are peripheral nerves. So when you think about someone having an epidural or a lumbar puncture or some kind of procedure involving the low back, they go all the way down as low as they can below L2. And because of that, they can act on these nerves without causing something like full body paralysis, which would be really bad because they're underneath the spinal cord and they're acting on these nerves that go out to the periphery. Remember, things that go out to places like your legs. So I mentioned before, we've got gray matter and white matter in that spinal cord. So the gray matter is located anteriorly and this houses the cell bodies of the spinal cord. The white matter is actually located just outside the gray matter. So it's kind of like surrounding it, so to speak. And that is the home to the axons. So sensory information from your periphery. So if someone touches your leg or if you're doing a squat and you have a lot of pressure and weight pushing on your knee and hip joints, for example, that information from the periphery is going to come along 
a spinal nerve, branch into the dorsal root, into the dorsal root filaments, and dorsal just means posterior or back. So it's entering in the back, and those filaments from the dorsal root into the dorsal root filaments will come into the dorsal side of the spinal cord, right? It all makes sense. We're going in the back. So from there, it's going to exit the uh, change, the motor output. So we have information coming in. It's processed by the spinal cord, maybe the brain, and now we need information coming out. So that information coming out is going to come from the ventral or anterior roots and filaments and then go right back into the spinal nerve. So the spinal nerve is sort of that two-lane highway, one going this way, one going that way, and then it branches into that anterior and posterior or ventral and dorsal, respectively, uh, root and filament. And that's where we start to get that one-way traffic, so to speak. So, all well and good there. Where are these peripheral nerves located, though, right? Just to kind of give you an indication, a uh, good feel, they're located on your foramen, or holes, within your vertebra, and they're located right on the sides of your spine. So everything kind of branches out to the sides. So, again, so far, so good. We went through brain. We went through the spinal cord. We've broken it down pretty good, I feel. And if you have questions on it, obviously, I'm always here to help you with that. So now let's break down the spinal cord a little more, as well as the autonomic nervous system, because I really haven't talked on that. So we'll start with the autonomic. So as I said, sympathetic and parasympathetic. We went over the levels before, sympathetic being T1 to L2, so mid-back to upper portion of your lower back, if you can picture that. And that parasympathetic is cranial nerves, so up in your brain, again, things like that vagus nerve, and your sacral nerves, S2, S3, S4, primarily. So what's interesting about that sympathetic nervous system in that mid-back, T1 to L2, is those fibers come off of those spinal levels and run into what we call a sympathetic chain ganglion or ganglion. And those fibers will basically come out and eventually they'll all connect together. So fibers from T10, so getting into that lower portion of your mid-back, or T12 might connect with the fibers, the nerve fibers from L1 and L2. And they'll kind of run to different organs from there. So they all kind of connect and run together. So that's about all I've got for those uh, without kind of spilling into more health and fitness stuff. And like I said, I don't want to spoil anything because we're just trying to lay the foundation and groundwork for all that fun stuff to come. So your spinal cord is actually broken up to, into a couple different tracks. I mentioned this before. And these tracks are kind of like elevators. You have some that go up and some that go down. Or I guess escalators would be a better analogy. Some go up, some go down. So the ones that go up, so ascending tracks, are your dorsal columns. And these dorsal columns are involved in things like proprioception or discriminative touch. And 
we actually test for that clinically in physical therapy. So if this is your first time listening to the show, you'll know that I you should know that I'm in graduate school for my doctorate of physical therapy. So we test for uh, proprioception, discriminative touch with different nervous system tests of your periphery. So legs, arms, that sort of thing. We also have another ascending track called the spinal thalamic or spinal thalamic tract, which is involved in crude touch and pain. And obviously, again, we can test these. And if there's issues, we typically tend to refer out. So as things go up, they must come down. So descending tracks would involve the lateral corticospinal and the anterior corticospinal tract. So the lateral corticospinal tract is also something we'll test clinically because it innervates different limb muscles. So it's responsible for contracting your muscles. So obviously in physical therapy, we want to keep an eye on that because if muscles aren't working, then we've got issues, to put it lightly. That anterior corticospinal tract is actually one that we don't do a whole lot with testing-wise clinically. There's a whole lot of other things we will kind of treat it with, but we might not test with it. It typically goes to your axial muscles and your spinal cord. So this tract would be like your um, back muscles and core muscles and stuff like that. So think about the core. We had a whole podcast on the core, trying to differentiate the rectus abdominis from the obliques, from the transversus abdominis, the QL. We said the diaphragm and the pelvic floor even play into the core. So you have all these components playing into one thing, and it's very, very hard to try and isolate and test one of those independently. So again, think about the rectus abdominis, for example. That does trunk flexion, so like a sit-up or a crunch. The problem is your hip flexors also do that same thing, and so don't your obliques. Your internal and external oblique will help you with a sit-up or crunch. So how then do you differentiate one of those from the others? So again, something we don't really do a whole lot with clinically. So say you have a lesion at one of these nerves. So say you have a upper motor neuron lesion or a lower motor neuron lesion. Then what exactly are we looking for? So that upper motor neuron lesion or the lower motor neuron lesion, they'll both provide muscle weakness, or you'll see muscle weakness in either one. Usually the lower, lower motor neuron is more pronounced. You'll, as a result, you'll see atrophy of muscles too. So if you don't have the nerve supplying the muscle to signal it to contract, obviously, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. So again, the weakness and the atrophy is more pronounced in those lower motor neuron lesions than those upper motor neuron lesions. So we also test for reflexes in physical therapy. And if you have an upper motor neuron lesion, you'll actually be hyperreflexic. So if we did that knee tap on you, your leg would kick out so quick, so fast, so far. And then that lower motor neuron will actually, uh, a lesion of that will actually be seen with no reflex. So we could tap on your knee all day long. We would not get anything. So 
basically breaking down where that is in the body. The lower motor neuron lesions will occur at lower motor axons or neurons. So these are things that come out of the spinal cord. So we talked earlier about how those nerves come out of the spinal cord and they innervate specific muscles. We're talking about that level, post-spinal cord. So lower motor neuron makes sense. Upper motor neuron lesions are pretty much everything else, um, typically up in the central nervous system more. So all well and good there. Again, that lower motor neuron lesion kind of, once you think about where it is, it really makes sense because it's on that road, so to speak, going from the spinal cord to the muscle itself. So if you had an issue there, say you had a giant sinkhole form in the middle of that road, and as a result, information could, get, could not get through, you couldn't drive on that road. Obviously, again, if you don't use it, you lose it. So you'll see muscular weakness, muscular atrophy, um, loss of function of whatever muscle that nerve supplies. Uh, you could think of it too, kind of like a restaurant. So we just had the whole pandemic there and all that. Say your restaurant is located on the other side of town and say there was a flood because 2020 can't get any worse, right? And that whole road washes out. If people can't get to your restaurant, then obviously it's going to go out of business, especially if you yourself couldn't even get to your own restaurant there. So... Great stuff there. Um, we also have, so I mentioned before about different components of the nervous system involved in sensation. Some are involved in mus um, muscular function. Just to break down those peripheral nerves a little bit more, we call them dermatomes and myotomes. And dermatomes are basically areas of skin that are innervated by a specific spinal nerve. And myotomes are muscles that are innervated by specific spinal nerves. Great. Makes a lot of sense, right? Hopefully. So I know this one was a little bit more in-depth, especially on kind of different things than we normally talk about on the podcast. I can't tell you the last time I brought up neuroscience to this level and this depth and talked about it this much with anyone, but I felt like it was important to lay that foundation and lay that framework because again we're going to be going over a lot of these concepts in so much more detail in the near future motor learning um, that's something i'm really excited to bring uh, dr john harned back to talk about is just the concept of neuromuscular rehab and we've got all kinds of other things from, you know, I mentioned the hypothalamus. So we'll talk about endocrine system, endocrine function, how you can actually use different health habits to biohack your endocrine system. So much to look forward to in the near future. But for now, thank you for listening to another episode of the Brown Body Podcast. Please feel free to like and subscribe to us and feel free to follow us on social media at Brawn Body with a W. Thank you again. Have a great day.